0: Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: It's such a huge honor to be here. So excited. Thank you so much. Um, I have also wanted to, to come to uh, the Admorash for such a long time, and it's, it's the, the work is just incredible. And uh, I know you all know what a treasure you have in Rabbi Yankowitz, and uh, it's really fun. We just got to grab some lunch quickly and, and catch up. It's really wonderful to see friends become uh, important Jewish leaders and thinkers. So it's it's, it's wonderful to to be here. A huge honor. Uh, I also wanna give a shout out, my first cousin is here who I haven't seen in many years. So that's very exciting. Little shout out, family shout out to Debbie. <laughs> and um, um, so it's just, it's wonderful to be here and thank you to all of the staff and everyone who makes this possible. And it's it's just really, I'm really, really hugely honored. So thank you so much for having me and I'm excited to learn together. Um, I wanted to say a sentence about Pardes because uh, Rabbi Yankowitz mentioned Pardes and uh, Pardes is a non-denominational co-ed Jewish learning program. Uh, whose goal is to open the doors of classic Jewish texts as wide as possible. Um, and we've had a uh, few f- faculty members who've who've been here, actually. Um, so it's, it's really an honor and great to be here. And I'm happy to talk to you more about our programs. We have lots of different programs all over uh, in Jerusalem for all different kinds of lengths, weeks, long, week-long, year-long semester. So I'm very happy to talk more about that um, as well. But what we're here to talk about today um, is power and authority in Jewish leadership, and and really the rabbinate? And um, it is a huge, to- it's a huge topic to do uh, in one hour. And it is a huge topic. Uh, I think that's very, very relevant. The question of what does it mean to have power and leadership uh, today is is a huge question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, people often ask me, um, you know, what are you thinking about right now? And the number one thing I'm thinking about and often teaching about on the road is uh, is power. What does it mean to have power? Where do we derive our power from? What do we do when there's abuses in power? Uh, what's, the role of, uh, what's the role of the leader? But even more so perhaps, what's the role of the community uh, in dealing with and in confronting and in thinking about our leadership, uh, our, our leaders, and, and, and thinking about how we uh, engage with them? So that's really, uh, I would say, uh, the question that we're gonna be looking at today. Okay, sound good? Everyone good? Any questions so far, t- comments? Thoughts, needs, um, I, as, as, as Rabbi Anklud mentioned, I'm very, I'm all about interaction. So, as I like to say, Torah is not a spectator sport. Which means I'm going to be like asking you guys to get involved. You're going to read. You're going to. So just, just in case you were thinking you're just going to like sit back, you're not. I'm going to make make you get involved. So that's just just warning you now. So um, we're going to actually look at together. We're not going to do the Rabbi Sacks piece. We're going to skip it, even though it's really worth. Uh, thinking about it and looking at, but we're actually going to start with a piece um, ba- about Hillel Hazakeh, uh Hillel the Elder. And um, I just want to, I like to, when we look at a piece of classic text, I like to do a little bit of background. So I want to tell you a little bit about what we're about to look at. We're about to look at something called the Tosefta. And the Tosefta is a, um, is a collection of material that is seen to be either contemporaneous or a little bit after the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is the first, what would you say is Mishnah? First rabbinical summary. Okay, great, excellent, what's your name, sir? Craig
2: Bolton.
1: Craig, okay. So Craig says to us, right? the first rabbinic uh, summary, I like that, That's a great answer. The first, I like to say the first written down code of oral law, right? You hear that little problematic there? The first written down code of oral law, right? And uh, because, because in traditional understanding of Judaism, we have right, a written Torah and an oral Torah, right, written law, and an oral law, the oral law is passed down generation to generation. The mission is seen as a codification of that work. Now, at the same time that that codification is happening, there is, also, um, there is also another work that's either being edited or comes a bit later that is a commentary on that. It's a matter of great debate among the academy. But what, what's important for us is that it is sort of parallel material to that which is in the Mishnah, okay? Time period-wise, language-wise, etc. It also is sometimes filled with uh, sort of stories and a Gaddik, right? Rabbinic, rabbinical story, additional material that is that is not in the Mishnah. And, and that happens, the story that we're about to look at happens in tractate p'sachim, in the section of the Tosefta and of the Mishnah and of the Talmud, eventually, that... Um, that deals with the laws of Passover, okay? Which I think is interesting to think about why does this story come in that that tractate? It's worth thinking about and talking about, but basically the answer is because it once happened, everybody with me? I'm in source number one on your pages, okay? Source number one, yeah? Everyone good? Okay, so it once happened that the 14th of Nisan, which is the day before Passover, right? as we know in Jewish tradition, the day begins the night before. Right, the night before, okay? So this is the day before the night of Passover, okay? The 14th. It falls out on Shabbat, okay? It falls out on the Sabbath. They asked Hillel the elder, everybody with me? They asked Hillel the elder, the Passover sacrifice, does it override Shabbat, i.e., are we allowed to slaughter it on the Sabbath? He said to them, have we only one Passover that overrides Shabbat? There are more than 300 sacrifices that have the same laws as the Passover sacrifice in the year which override the Shabbat. And then what happens, guys? alav kol All of the people in the entrance hall gather against him okay <laughs> so just this we could really spend like an hour on thinking about and talking about like what has happened here first of all it's just important to know who is this guy hillel the elder okay it's a really interesting and important question right because uh, it's not clear exactly who he is right we know hillel when we say hillel we mean hillel and shammai excellent right this is hillel hazaken hillel the founder of bait hillel or right? the founder of the entire movement called the Hillelian school, right? Here he is. We're meeting him, okay? And uh, it seems to be, right, they come to ask him this question. We're going we're gonna to learn a little bit um, more about him as we go. But, but what's important here is they come to ask him this question, okay? And they say to him, does this override Shabbat? And he says, what's his response to them? There are many other occasions, right? Why? Why are there many other occasions wherein sacrifices override Shabbat? What are we talking about? Anybody know? We're talking about the basic idea that actually temple service overrides Shabbat in general. I think it's something we don't really think about or talk about, but that actually in the time period when I have a temple, Shabbat was a normal day in the temple, meaning there are additional sacrifices. But all of the normal Shabbat, all the normal daily sacrifices that I would do every single day of the week, also happened on Shabbat. So he's basically saying to them, guys, what do you mean? This is... Now, part of the question there, that's interesting that's happening at the root of this is, is the Passover sacrifice treated like a normal sacrifice in the temple, or is it somehow unique? And what would make the Passover sacrifice unique? It would be about the fact that each individual or individual family would have to bring one. So it's a very different thing than we, the priests in the temple, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. It's a different conversation. You see that? So part of what he's answering, which I think is interesting here, is they're trying to figure out what is the nature of the sacrifice, and he's answering with, Now, what do you guys think? Why do you think that the whole community gathers against him here? The whole community is like, Oh, no, we don't like this at all. Why not? Okay, f- fantastic. Great. Sorry, tell me your name. Yeah. Becca? Okay, can everyone say their names as they answer? I, I want to get to know you. Okay, great. So, Becca says to us, like, he doesn't explain everything I just said, right? Maybe <laughs> he should have said, oh, I understand your question. I see. Your question is about the nature of the sacrifice. Maybe he needed to really engage with them better or at least explain more, right? Good. You're fat. What else? What else do we think? Individual
3: sacrifices, they have to do it individually to bring to the temple, then the temple doing the sacrifice.
1: Right. Right. So therefore, so say more, and also tell me your name. Suzanne. Suzanne. I
4: saw you
1: in England last week. Oh, hi, Suzanne. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's more for them. It's the community having to bring the sacrifice right. instead of the leaders. Oh, I see. Success. So they Okay, interesting. So in other words, they, they didn't like his answer. So one answer is like, they, well, I think it's interesting that we just heard there between Becca and Suzanne, which is interesting, right, is that Becca's saying to us they didn't like how he answered, and Suzanne is saying they didn't like his answer. Right? Those are different things, right? which, by the way, says a lot about what we look for for our leaders. Are we looking for people who are going to just give us the answers we want, and then when they don't, we don't like them very much? Or are we looking for people who are going to be like, look, I don't really keep... it's not about the answer, it's how you speak with me. And I think there is something very important in this, right? that there really is a way in which Hillel here really dismisses the people. You know he's well, come, are, are there only one? is there only the attitude there's a little bit of an attitude here, which I think you hear. And what's interesting about this piece that I really love is we really see a growth moment for Hillel in this story. and we're, gonna, we're, we're we haven't seen it yet. We've just seen him sort of slough off the people and then react, but we're about to see it. okay? Uh, do I have a volunteer to read? And we're going to get a little technical here, so don't don't get worried if you don't totally understand what's going on. We're about to get a little bit technical, but bear with me because the end is so great that it's worth getting a little technical, okay? So who's reading for us from he said to them? He said Okay, so he does, right, he does this comparative move where he says, which basically is exactly the same answer he said the first time, right? But as Becca said to us, he didn't bother explaining it to them, right? Okay, good. Then he goes on. Yeah, keep going, Becca. You're doing great. <laughs> Okay, great. So I want us to notice that he's starting to give them, you see here, that he, he gives a very simple answer to the people and says, oh, come on, obviously, did da na right? And they don't like that. And then he starts to, show his work. Basically, instead of saying, what's, I'm gonna start trying to do math here and being recorded and that's never a good thing, but like, what's 27 divided by nine? There you go, thank you, three. And he, didn't, he just says three, that's the first thing, right? And then he's, no, no, no. let me show my work now. I know, I know 27 divided by nine is not something you have to show, like, it's not such a hard thing to show your work, but I've never been great at math. But, uh, but right, so basically what's happening here is he's starting to show them his work. I didn't just slop off the answer to you, I'm trying to explain to you. First, I tell you, basically the first thing I say is, Oh, the Passover sacrifice is like a tamid, right? Then I say to you, and also I have textual proof, right? There's analogous verses, analogous words about each one of these sacrifices. So I'm starting to, right, so the first one is I prove it to you logically, then I start to prove it to you textually, right? And I'm going to continue going on. Okay, keep going back you're doing great. Right. Okay. So now he says, "Look at look to, look." This is the Kav homer right? Another. And by the way, I want us to know, and this thing is important. According to many scholars, right here, this text is where we start to establish the midrashic principles, right? The principles of tools that the rabbis use. Right? Pr- tools of midrash, tools of biblical exegesis, in order to derive law from text. That many people think this is the earliest source that we have wherein we say, here, here are some tools that we use. When I'm trying to mine the text for law, I use various tools. And we're basically, this is the rabbis explaining where those tools originate. Okay? So we learned about right, textual and analogies in the text. And now we're learning about, right, well, if, right, the, um, if the tamid, right, which is seen to be ka, which is seen to be simple, Overrides, so like, how much more so this thing, which is going to the punishment, is so much more severe if I don't do it, should override Shabbat, okay? And now here go, here it goes, guys. Now here's where it all comes down. All right, so we had some technical midrash. Okay, great. But now, look what happens next. Becca, read for us the next sentence. And
4: further, I received a tradition from my teachers that the Passover sacrifice
1: overrides the Shabbat. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay. So now suddenly I have a new principle, and what's this new principle we're learning? Precedent great great phenomenal right precedent the elders have spoken and I think also he's saying here this is not my innovation I'm not in you think I'm innovating you think I'm mining the text for new law no I have a tradition from my teachers okay so I want us to just notice this already what we've learned in terms of the, the tools that he is pulling out, right, of his toolkit to say, here's why what I said before, even though I sort of like brushed you all off and said, oh, come on, right, which you didn't like very much. So I bring out my tools of biblical exegesis, and I also bring out, right, my uh, my teachers. Please don't think that what I'm doing here is innovative, right, is only innovative, okay? So I, which I just want us to notice because I think it's actually a fascinating thing. What we're really building here is a case for why Hillel should have any authority? Right? And the first answer is because he has great skill in learning. And the second answer so far is that he has precedent and he has teachers and he has a tradition that he is right. Okay, so those are two very important things that we're noticing. Okay, great. But Becca, yeah, you're doing great, Becca. Thank you.
4: this is so, what will be with the ones who do not bring a slaughtering night and have Passover offerings
1: Keep going, yeah?
4: He said to them, let them be inspired by heaven. If they are not prophets, they are sons of prophets.
1: Okay, let's pause right there, okay? And suddenly, again, my friends, everything single line of this text is like a game changer, right? Because what happens next? Then they say to him, okay, great, now that you have proven to us, both because you have textual proof and because you have a tradition from your teachers, now you've proven to us that, in fact, the Passover sacrifice overrides Shabbat, right? But now I have a problem. Okay, my friends. Which is, I have all these people who have all of these, uh, all of these um, Passover sacrifices, all these lambs, and they don't have, they don't have knives. So it's very nice now that we know this. But now it's already the 14th, and they don't actually have knives. How are they going to get their knives, right, to uh, to the temple on Shabbat? What are they going to do? So what does he say? What's his response? Right, there's a huge moment here, really interesting, where he's basically saying, basically he's saying, <laughs> I have, uh, right, have ad Khan, like I've done my duty, I've told you the halacha, I've told you what the law is going to be here. But there's a certain point where I have to do what? Improvise. improvise, good. Do I have to improvise? Right, I have to say to the people, listen, you're very smart, you know the law now, okay, figure it out. Right? And if they're not, what's interesting about the prophecy is very, very important in this, right? Because basically, what he's saying to them is, you don't have to only rely on me, the rabbi, the teacher, the leader. There is something in this where I'm saying to you, you have to take responsibility for your own practice, right? And I think something else very beautiful here, which is who has access to the divine in this piece? Everyone. Right? which I think is so amazing. By the way, does he say that about the law? He doesn't say that when they come to ask him the law. He doesn't say, well, go ask God. Right? He doesn't say that, which I think is really interesting. He doesn't choose to say to them, oh, law, whatever, if you're prophets, you're some of the prophets. He doesn't say there are no laws, there are no boundaries, there are no rules. You can see he actually cares a lot about the rules. right? And he's, he makes them. And he is able to say to people, look, I have learning under my belt. And not just do I have learning, but I also have... Tradition and teachers. I'm in a line of tradition, but then what's interesting, what's fascinating, and I think incredibly powerful about this piece, is that then he says, and also, I'm not everything, and I shouldn't be everything, and you shouldn't look to me as the only one who can have this connection with the divine, right? That, who gets to have a connection with the divine? All of you, the whole nation, right? You're part of this divine relationship, which I think is An incredible moment in this text, okay? And lo and behold, my friends, what happens next? Becca, go ahead. OK, so so much happens here, right? First of all, the story tells us that was, was Hillel right? In doing what? What was he right in doing? That's trusting them. OK, I'm going to trust you guys now. You're going to figure it out, right? And what did the people do? They figured it out in a way that was what? Acceptable, good, right? In other words, it's not that they said, OK, we'll just carry our knives, which I also think is important here, in other words, well, part of what this text is saying to me is when I trust the people to care about the system in the way that I do or at least I trust them to care about the system right, in the way that they do, they actually respect the system, which is so interesting. Very, it's very, this is a very, very radical piece, I would say, right? And they find a way to work within the system that will work. But then, you know what's interesting, my friends? Then The story doesn't end there. And then they all worked out and it was all great. The story ends with one more line, which is what? They made, him the they made him the leader. And I will tell you, and if we had another four hours, we would have done this story. This story appears in two other places. One is in the Jerusalem Talmud and one is in the Babylonian Talmud. Okay? So the, the story gets embellished. And, and each one of those places, what's interesting is in that story, the, he's appointed a nasi, he's, he's appointed the head of the community at different points in the story. So in the Babylonian Talmud, it's after he can prove his learning. In the Jerusalem Talmud, it's after he can prove that he heard it from his teachers. And here, it's interesting, in the Tosefta, when does he become the leader? Only after he leads. Beautiful, Suzanne. Say another sentence. What do you mean? I'm sorry. Say another sentence. What do you mean by that? Only after he leads. beautiful. Right? So only at, what's interesting here is only after he demonstrates to the people that he trusts them. That they're actually in this partnership together. And I think it's a real... Okay, so what do you guys think about this? What are your, what's your reaction? Now we've read the story, we've seen the different elements to it. What do you guys think? Yes, tell me I your name.
3: I don't read it as there being any innovation. Okay, wait, tell me your name. Danny.
1: Danny. Say um, more.
3: I'm reading it as this is how... Like this was this text was where, Hillel lived around like a couple hundred years before the Second Temple was destroyed, right?
1: About a hundred probably. 100, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So um, like they like the Jews have been doing this exact practice since the first temple was built. So it's not like they were innovating the the people that he's talking to were innovating that moment. It was this is how it's been done for since right. they had this issue being brought up.
1: Right. Except that it seems to be that they didn't know what to do. That's the million-dollar the million question that you're raising, Danny. Is like, why, If this is so clear-cut, and it's so obvious, and he has all these proofs, and he can trust them, and why didn't they know the halacha, right? And by the way, why didn't they know the law? And by the way, the Babylonian Talmud is very disturbed by that, by the way. And in fact, has Hillel rebuking them and saying, why don't you know this? You should know this. Why don't you serve your teachers properly? Why don't you learn properly? Why don't you? So it's actually a, criti- a point of critique of the people, right? I hear what you're saying that it should be like this. Actually, shouldn't be a question. Like, I think it happened. Oh, I'm going to mess this up, and we're recording, so I, I'm messing this up. But it's happened something like seven times in 19 years, or something like that. That that Shabbat, that this situation would fall out. Okay, so it's not like it's once in a hundred years. You wouldn't know. It should be something you know, and you tell your children, and you pass down. So it's very interesting to notice that these are people. That these people at least did not know the law, and, and, and which I think is really fascinating, right? And, 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 the, and the Babylonian Talmud is disturbed by that fact. So I hear what you're saying, like this should have been something that should have been common practice, but at least from this story, they didn't know. And at least from this story, not only didn't they know, they didn't know sort of the knock-on effects of it. Not just the law, but then how we would practically make it happen, Right? Which I think is an interesting question, and is also interesting in terms of our leadership. We sort of look to our leaders sometimes. I don't know if anyone else has this experience, but I definitely do have this experience. Like every year, I'm like, "Okay, Rosh Hashanah, what am I supposed to do again? What do I like? I have to like review." And that's actually a, a, that's actually part of Jewish tradition is that you start reviewing the laws of a holiday 30 years, 30 day, 30 years, 30 days before the holiday. I started with Passover a little early, don't worry, those of you who. I'm getting nervous already about the matzah and the cleaning. Don't worry, but so we started a little early for that with that halacha. But, but, I think it's an interesting thing to notice that we sort of look to our leaders to be those keep to be the keeper. And here he is the keeper of the law, right? Um, but at least that last piece where he says if they're not prophets, they're sons of prophets. There it feels to me like he's saying to them, the practicalities are going to work out on your own, right? which I think is interesting, right? And, and we really are watching. What I think is, what's important for us to understand here, my friends, is that we're not just watching some rabbi get appointed as the head of the seat, right? This is Hillel, okay? Basically, all of our law follows Hillel. Right? He always—not always. Right? Never can say. We can never say always. The Urbanic law, but most of the time, 90% of the time, the law, right, follows Hillel. So when the rabbis tell the story, and it's, they're much—they're much later than this. They're 300 years after him. Okay? So, so I think it's important. How do we tell the story of the leaders who came before us? And part of what we're saying is, even if it's not true, even if—even if, even if we—it's not innovative, our experience of it or at least the traditional, the way we tell the story from generation to generation is that Hill trusted us and that that's what we're looking for in our leadership, which I think is really interesting. But by the way, it doesn't mean I forgo the law and it doesn't mean I forgo tradition and it doesn't mean I forgo textual proof. I don't forgo any of those things. I need it all. But what is interesting to me about this piece is that at the end of the day, I appoint you only after you can prove that you trust me, which I think is really interesting. Yes, and just tell me your name? William.
4: William, what are the implications for previous sub uh, that had fallen on Shabbat? I mean, after a little few years before that, there was probably another...
1: Uh, right, right. It's a great question. they
0: already for hundreds of ships, right? The second one. Right, market. right. What was during the Hasmonean people? Great question. Did they, did they great. offer the sacrifice on Shabbat? Did they, did right. They, and if they did, it seems to me that would be It
1: to
4: everybody. Right. Would be not.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So why, but this is all like, like this just you know? right. exactly. I, think that's, that's, I think that's like the most burning question in this, which is why the Talmuds try to deal with it, because they're disturbed by it. So, what, so the B- Babylonian Talmud would answer your question like this. Of course they knew the law, but they forgot it. Why? They weren't good students, which of course is the Babylonian Talmud's answer, because that's their answer to everything. Learn Torah, that's the number one. Right. but, but. I think your question is better than the Bobley's answer, probably. Not that I can probably, again, I'm being taped, but. But. that
4: a lot of these were just developing?
1: They I do think that this is developing here, yeah. I do think that there's an argument to be made that they're developing this here. Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's an argument to be made for that, for sure. I think it depends that this is sort of a Danny William McCloket. And they've already been doing it for hundreds of years, or is this, are we watching them create the law now? Big question, big well, question in the, the academy, big now. question. Okay. Sure, tons. Tons. Like,
3: there's a lot of Absolutely right. The, right.
1: Jews, so. right. Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess that's. Big question. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a good question. Like, th- by the way, this is happening in the Azarah. The Azara is in the temple, this question is happening, right? kol the whole courtyard or entrance hall gathers against him. We're talking about in the temple. So I do think it's a big question, right? Is this something we've been doing for hundreds of years? Or are we actually watching it? Or has this practice actually fallen out of practice? Right, which is a big question. Great, okay, phenomenal. Good, 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 okay, yeah.
2: This is not contrary to what we know historically otherwise because as I've read the history Anyway, the Maccabees, the Maccabees that actually took power, not the ones that were bolded, because the ones that were the right, right. ones who were killed, uh, were incredibly corrupt. They became more and more corrupt over time and it's not surprising, right. therefore, the
1: people didn't know. Right? Because the question was, Absolutely. how many
2: shekels do you have to buy this? To buy
1: that? Right. Right. Also important. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. fact, yes. Well, Just tell me your name. Myra. Myra.
4: Something must have been happening with that they felt the need. They didn't want to be turned down doing uh, to bring sacrifices. This was. like mm. They needed to bring them. They didn't want you know anything to that. Mm-hmm. It must have been very mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. that they did not mm-hmm. day. Right. So even though uh, it may have been done seven years previously, they are just clarifying. They wanted to make sure because this was going to be very
1: important. Right. I think that there is an interesting question here also about individual versus temple that's happening here, right? This is the moment <laughs> we're watching them talk about where is my individual place, in this temple sacrifice, in this temple rite, right? That, that's definitely, there's a subtext of that, I think, for sure. And he keeps saying, it's just like a public sacrifice. It's just like a and they and they keep, I think, being like, and then what's interesting is that flip for him of saying, okay, now that I understand this is affecting every individual family or group, right, then I'm going to put it back in your hands. I know this is important to you, right? Beautiful. It's a very, very beautiful point. Yes, sorry. Ilana. Ilana. Right, right, good, good. Yeah, what happened? What kind of innovation, I hear you're saying, <coughs> is it what happened, what kind of innovation within Ju- Judaism and Jewish tradition and law can can occur when I actually give that, when I democratize it? Right? It's a really huge question. And 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 I love the idea that he's saying to him, you don't need an, you don't need an intermediary. I'm not your prophet. Which by the way is important because I really do believe that prophecy ended already. Right? Hillel saying prophecy is over. So, even though I'm saying that, prophecy is over, I'm not your prophet. I'm your rabbi or scholar, but I'm not a prophet. But you all do have the capacity to do that. And look what happens, right, when you, when you give that power back. So, the three elements I'm just I'm going to ask you guys to turn the page. The three elements that I think are happening in this text are transmission, knowledge, and trusting in the people, right? Those are, those are the three pieces that we're talking about in terms of um, rabbinic authority. And there's a. <laughs> There's a ton of text on here, okay? Tons, way too much text. And I want you to know that that's sometimes frustrating for people when they leave sessions that I do that there's like all these texts and we didn't get to them. I want you to know, it's, I'm just gonna let you in on a little secret, even though, again, this is being recorded. Uh, this, is a, this is a pedagogic thing I do every time. It's always too much text, on purpose. Because I never want people to walk out of an hour session and feel like, oh, we covered the whole topic of leadership in Judaism, right? And there's always more to learn. So if there's pieces that we're not gonna get to, those are on purpose, okay? And that's also that so you get to keep learning. You don't want to be done now. You want to keep going. So there's nothing to learn this afternoon, tomorrow. Okay, so that's on purpose. So So even if you're frustrated, I apologize for the frustration, but don't feel too frustrated because it really was there on purpose. Okay?
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning.
1: So... Um, I want us to, we're going to move on to, um, so just so you know what, which ones we're going to do, okay? We're doing three, four, and seven, okay? Just so you know that in your minds. We never even intended to do the other ones, okay? Okay, so let's look at three, okay? Source number three is a source from Tractate Megillah. We're in the Babylonian Talmud. And, uh, and we have here a very interesting moment. Okay, so who's reading for us? Source number three? Yes. There we go ahead.
2: them was written according to all the words which the lord spoke with you on the mountain it teaches do you want me to read
1: deuteronomy nine ten? 10. if you want to so it's a quote from deuteronomy 9 10 great it
2: teaches it teaches us that god shows showed moses the precise words of the torah and the precise teachings of the sages and that which the sages would innovate in the future
1: okay great so guys this, we're watching here another act of midrash another act of where the rabbis are looking at the text and saying, let's be very precise. And the fundamental belief here, I think, it's important to understand. The fundamental theological belief here is not one letter of the Torah was was unnecessary. So if there's an additional letter that isn't necessary in terms of understanding the meaning of the word, then I then I can perform midrash on that. This is the school of Akiva. It's the Akivan school, right? Every letter is precious and on purpose. And therefore, if there's an extra letter, I get to expand. Torah, okay? So what happens here, my friends? The Hebrew says, according to all of the things. And there's an extra ke, There's an extra kaf there. It's not necessary. In order to understand, it could have just said, according to the things. Why does it say, according to all of the things? It's too many words, okay? And the rabbis come along and say, ah, right? And by the way, when I say written on them, what do I mean? What's the them? Any idea? Upon them was written according to all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain. What do you think the them is? What's written on what? The
3: community or the people.
1: So that's for, good. So for the community and the people, but what, what's written literally on them physically? The tablets, good, right? Written on the tablets was all the things, okay? All of the things that would be innovated in the future were already written in the Ten Commandments or on the Ten Commandments, okay? Because there's, there's, there's a little... There's a little problematic because there's one other word that happens here, right? Teaches us that God showed Moses the precise words of the Torah and the precise teachings of the sages and that which the sages would innovate in the future. So let me ask you a question that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Is it an innovation or is it already written in the Ten Commandments? Help me out, help me out. (laughs) Oh, man, what's happening here, right? You hear, the, you, hear the, you hear the tension here, right? And this is absolutely, let us not pretend that Rabbi Yochanan doesn't know that that's exactly what's happening here. Okay, I just want to say, Rabbi Yochanan's very intelligent. And if I could ask that question, believe me that Rabbi Yochanan can ask that question, okay? So Rabbi Yochanan here is saying, on the Ten Commandments, was everything the sages would innovate in the future. Okay, help me. What do you guys think? Yeah, go ahead. Beautiful,
4: beautiful, 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 beautiful,
1: fantastic, right, so Becca's saying to us, no, Yafa, you're misunderstanding what it means to innovate, what it means to innovate, this is what I hear you saying, what it means to innovate is to take a basic principle, and from there, right, expand, so it's not that God showed Moses the actual innovations, he showed Moses, or God showed Moses the building blocks of what would be eventually innovated in the future, Yes? Okay, good. Other thoughts? Yeah, Danny, go ahead. The other
3: way around. I think good. Moshe did receive everything, everything that the sages possibly could ever come up with, God told that to Moshe. And um, I mean, I think there's other traditions that say, like, we've lost many, many laws that we're still trying to recover. Mm-hmm. But that moment when God spoke to Moses, um, all of the laws on the... Written, in the written and oral Torah were given to him and he knew about them from that point on. So whether or not he actually passed all of them along to those people after him, I'm not sure. But I think that's, that's, how, I, that's how I understand it.
1: Okay, phenomenal. So meaning, meaning what I hear you saying, Dan, is right now, this moment, this moment, this conversation, actually, Moses knew about it. No, no, no. 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 All the,
3: like, the sages that wrote that Finished and completed the Talmud and the and the law, and the um, code of Jewish law, all of that was already passed down to Moshe. Right,
1: but what, not the conversation. But not this not, moment. Not necessarily. Why not? Because we're not the sages. But we are the sages. <laughs> I would argue we are right now. This moment, actually, <laughs> right? Because what I like to say about sessions like this, I'm very lucky. I get to do a lot of sessions like this. I'm very blessed. Like, Every single one of these moments, right now, my friends, the Torah that we are creating in this room has never been created before. This conversation has never happened before, which means no one could have written it down, which means, right, we are literally creating Torah together. This is a moment, which maybe we want to say, maybe Danny is suggesting, although with hesitation, I hear Danny, right, that actually perhaps even this moment that we're having right now actually was revealed to Moses on Sinai, right? Right? That that was that's what it means. Like any possibility. Now, if we're, re- if we're reading it Becca Becca's way, then that's true because these texts, or right, the basic building fundamental building blocks of Jewish tradition were revealed at Sinai, and then from then on, we now have the capacity to expand and expand and expand that Torah, right? Ad infinitum, including this room, right? Or is it that this exact conversation? Right? Very interesting. I think very interesting question. Or no, I, when I say what well, the sages are eventually going to innovate right, maybe Danny too, we could read this, right, uh, is, is specifically the codes that get codified and the sages and who qualifies you to be a sage is a great question, right? Although what I do think is interesting is we've already seen in source number one is that the innovation of the, of the people, knowing where to, what to do with their knife in order to get that knife to the temple, that gets codified. That's a moment where the people innovated and where the sons of prophets or children of prophets and that gets codified into Jewish law, and it's talked about for the next 2,000 years, which is really fascinating, right? So, really interesting question, okay? So, but I think that, I just wanna suggest that this is sort of at the heart, really, of, of, of the question of, of transmission in Jewish tradition, right? is a huge question, like, what exactly is passed down? What exactly, who exactly gets to be part of that conversation, and what exactly is that conversation? Do I know the whole time? I want to suggest that Rabbi Yochanan knows. Rabbi Yochanan knows that he's innovating. Of course he does. Of course he knows that he's creating new new understandings. And so when he says, when he claims that it was revealed to Moses, what is he trying to say?
4: The pieces were there.
1: The pieces were there. Excellent. Excellent. Good. Good. So, the, so, so the My, this is the My Rebecca chavruta, right? The pieces were there. The fundamental building blocks were there. I like it. I also want to suggest it's also about... How do I see the work that I'm doing? Legitimacy. Legitimacy. Good. Say another sentence and also tell me your name. Uh, Akiva. Akiva. Um, so by saying that it was already revealed, he's giving like the ultimate authority. Great. Saying, hey, that's, it's
4: not even an innovation in the traditional Good. think of. It's actually Good. already, this
3: was meant to be, this was shared.
1: Beautiful, beautiful, right? And I think it's such, a, it's such an interesting thing about leadership. How do I see myself? Even if, of course I know I'm innovating, of course I know I'm expanding, of course I am. I just expanded from a cuff. I know what I'm doing. I literally just took a cuff and made it mean everything I was about to say. I literally took text and interpreted it. Of course I know that I'm expanding the Torah. I'm literally doing it in this piece. But, right, as I keep saying to us, right, is it about, how do I perceive of myself? Do I see myself as breaking, as doing something new, or do I see myself as, of course this was part of the tradition the whole time. But I I think for me, this piece, I love it because of this. This is exactly the rabbinic dance. This is what it is to be a rabbi in this time period, right? To be part of the sages. Of course, I know I'm innovating. And of course, I know that I'm not innovating at all. Right? And if you look at really great responsive literature, it has exactly that. No, right? Uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein, right? Very important, um, considered to be modern halachic decisor. Most, Many, many of his two vote are like, no, can't make it happen, can't make it happen. OK, here's how we could do it. Nope, nope. And there's a way in which there's a real moment of saying, I, I know that I am innovating, and also I perceive of myself as being part of a chain of tradition. Very similar, I feel like, to Hillel, right? I, here's all the reasons why I can prove it textually, but please understand that I perceive of myself as being in the tradition of my teachers. And that dance is very, very delicate and nuanced and also very real in terms of the rabbinic understanding. OK? Yeah, Back go ahead. As you're saying all this, I, I have this impression that a lot of this has to do with perspective.
4: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Thing, um, I, I respect what you were saying. If, in fact, everything was, was revealed, absolutely everything, then maybe the proper perspective is that we're too young in the world's experience <laughs> to realize that if we had yeah. Hmm. You know, beautiful. Beautiful.
1: Beautiful. 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 Great point. Great. 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 So, in the grand scheme of things, and the really good right from the bird's eye view, I say of God, right? Of course, we're not innovating anything, but from our perspective, right? Right. Beautiful. Very, very nice. Yeah, William, go ahead. But well,
4: Rabbi Akiva didn't innovate anything, uh, why was Moses lost in his
1: place? Yeah. Yeah. Great yeah you know,
4: it was, for those of you not familiar they were transported from the archivist yeshiva Yeah. and uh he didn't know what was going on yeah yeah and, and well, finally when they said it's for moses yeah even though he didn't know what that he doesn't he didn't remember <laughs> given that yeah but he said it was from moses he was uh yeah, yeah. So that doesn't show that what's, what was given at sinai was potential not actual laws outside of him
1: I don't know what does. Right. Although, it's, like, it's a great question because that story, what's amazing about that story, there's so many different pieces of that story that are so beautiful. But, right, but William, is say, William is saying to us, there's a clear moment in Babylonian Talmud wherein we see and the rabbis admit. I think what's important here is that this is the rabbis. These are the rabbis saying to us, here's how transmission works. Right. I live in the tension between knowing that I'm innovating because for sure, I know that. Like, that's told to us by Rav, who's the same generation of Yochan, And I think that that's actually a really fascinating thing. It seems to me that the rabbis of the Talmud were really interested in this question of, what project am I being a part of? <laughs> right? They, they want to figure it out. They want to figure out, like who am I in this? Am I an innovator, or am I simply a transmitter? And their answer is yes. Right? Their answer is yes. I'm an innovator, and I'm a transmitter. And I live in that real tension. Right? By the way, I think what's interesting about that is it's not enough. What, what's, what's interesting to me about the Hillel story that we started with is it's not enough to simply say, I'm a transmitter. I don't let you live there. I also ask for you to have the chops. Can I say that? Chops? Mm-hmm. Can I say that? OK. To have the chop, like you got to have the learning chops. You know, you have to, is it, I just was wondering if that's still an acceptable term. Is it? I don't know. I don't know what it means even. <laughs> you got to have the chops, right? you got to know how to learn. You can't, just be an, you can't just be a transmitter. And you also, by the way, can't just be an innovator. You ha- it's really this tension of, I stay within the line of tradition. OK, so with that, guys, we're going to move on to source number four because it's really an amazing piece. Amazing, OK? Who's reading for us? It's like a scandalous moment in the Yicaraba. Who's reading? You want to keep going, Debbie? OK, great. Yeah, you're doing great. It sounds shocking, right? Wait, what? Did I read that right? Exactly, good. Okay. So, <laughs> crazy story? This is a crazy story. This is a, really a crazy and amazing story, okay? So he shows up in shul one day, right, this rabbi, and he doesn't know how to lead the prayer, lead the prayer service. And they say to him, oh, come on, buddy. I mean, come on. What? This is Rabbi are that we make... Every- and by the way, we, what's interesting is this idea of everyone makes such a fi- f- fuss about which I think is important here, is that what they're making a fuss about is his learning. Right? What Lazarus is famous for is his learning. But what he's maybe not famous for is his ability to lead services. Okay? And then they say to him, why does he even please? Like community, we know how to lead services, at least, right? How could the rabbi not know how to lead services, right? Which I think is such, there's so much to unpack here about what we expect from our rabbis and what we should be to do. Everything, you know, be executive directors and great fundraisers and also great daveners and also right and also great with people and also great scholars and there's a lot. And I love that it starts already as early as like Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Lazar. Personally, I think it's really comforting and interesting right <laughs> but what we expect from our leaders what we say from our rabbis but but I think right so what do they say about him does he even merit the title rabbi right how could this be and then they answer then what happened to me he says don't worry I'm gonna take you under my wing and uh and teach him everything so what do you guys think about this text what's your feeling about it
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Good. That's right. Right. And he's actually very upset that he's unable, he doesn't know something and he's able to grow. Right. So I think it's interesting that we're watching the what's most fascinating to me is when the rabbis get self-reflective, you know, they're telling stories. Great. We don't know why he doesn't know. Right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It beautiful, beautiful, beautiful,
4: great! Ah, oh. oh.
1: beautiful, and beautiful,
4: beautiful.
1: I also want to just say, very, very beautiful point. I also want to say this is actually the beginning of the creation of prayer. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's important to understand that actually prayer has been around mm, maybe like fifty years at this point, maybe. Because right? even Rabbi Akiva is involved in the original conversation between Gamaliel and Yeshua about the creation of the Amidah. Okay? And when we say Shema, that's not true for Shema, by the way. Shema, we believe, is, was being said already at the, between the First and Second Temple periods as faith statements. So, but Porcina al Shema, let's be very careful here. Liferos ala actually, this is, a, this is a practice that seems to be... A, it's, a, it's actually a matter of great debate among these scholars what exactly this means. But one answer is that Shema originally was a call and response which is such a fascinating idea, and I would love to see how we could reinstate that. it would be so interesting. But basically, it was like, so okay and then the people would respond, Hashem achad. So there's something about like the real cheer, right, chant. So there's something about here, like not just knowing the prayers, but knowing how to lead. That's what I hear you say, Becca, back, back right? Which I think is really an interesting question, right? In other words, maybe I pray personally. Maybe the custom in your place is different. And I think it's really important, right, uh, that, that the text says he went to a certain place, meaning he's not in his own town. So I don't want to be presumptuous, this is, I don't want to be presumptuous and assume I know the customs of your place because we're really in a time when prayer is sort of shifting and is new and everyone maybe does it differently. And so I want to be respect, that's a real respect moment, right? So then why are they upset with him? goes back
3: to that expectation.
1: Great, great, right? I, and I think it's a really interesting question, right? do I want my uh, rabbis and leaders to actually lead and not ask me? Right, I almost see this as like a response. like Hillel says, listen guys, you take responsibility. And it's almost like them saying back to him, no, tell us what to do. Right, I wonder about that. Actually, no, I don't want to take responsibility. In, in, this, in the first story we saw in the Tosefta, it all works out great. They're like, okay, we'll take responsibility, we do it, we work it out, it's all beautiful. But sometimes you say to a leader, no, that <laughs> we actually don't know. We actually don't know the answer. And part of what we need from you is to lead us here, right? And it's a really interesting question. You can see he feels like he failed them, right? Now, it could be because they basically put him down and said he's not worthy of being a rabbi. But it also could be maybe he feels like this was a moment when I had the chance to actually teach them and I didn't step up to that, which I think is really a really fascinating question. You know, what are the moments when we as a community need to say to our leaders, Actually, you're not off the hook. Actually, we need you to step in here. Maybe not by saying, why do you merit the title rabbi? That might not be the nicest move, but there's something in here about the community stepping up and saying, please lead us now. Actually, we don't know what to do, which is very different than Hill saying, you guys take the power. There's sort of a dialogue that's happening there, okay? Um, okay, we're gonna move on to, I think this is, guys, this is like one of the greatest stories in the whole town, but is not super well known. It's like a few lines, it doesn't get a ton of play. But it's source number seven on your pages. And um, really, really quite beautiful. So <laughs> I'm gonna read it inside, but I wanna tell you a sentence about it, because as always, I really believe you have to contextualize all of uh, the Talmud. So what's happening here in source number seven, what's happening here in source number seven, my friends, is this is a story that is an arc of seven stories. Often in the Babylonian Talmud, there is an arc of seven stories. Okay, where I tell you seven different stories. And this is number this is story number 4. And story number 4 is the middle, right? If, if I think about a chiastic structure, right? We heard this concept of chiastic structure. A chiastic structure is basically like this: A B C D C1 B1 A1, right? So A and A match, B and B match, C and C match, and D is the point of why I'm telling you all these stories. So this is D. This is like the the juicy center, right? The center of like uh like the little Never mind. I'm trying to find food metaphors, but like the center of like um, a cinnamon Danish, you know, like the center middle. The
4: roll center of a Tootsie
1: Roll. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much, Megan. Exactly. The Tootsie Roll center. So this is the Tootsie Roll center. Okay. So, um, okay. So, <laughs> and they're all stories, guys. They're all stories in tractate Tanit. Tractate Tanit is the ta- is the tractate that deals with rain, uh, and specifically deals with. What do I do when I'm experiencing a drought? I live in the land of Israel. I'm experiencing a drought, which means I don't have crops. And I am fasting in order to bring the rain, right? This is a tractate all about fast days. So in this tractate, guys, there is a series of seven stories. It's really incredible. These stories are, like, remarkable. And in these stories, each one is about a time when a very big and important rabbi declares a fast, asks for rain, and the rain doesn't come. I often call it, like, it's really basically when rabbis fail. That's really what these stories are about, okay? So, so and so, a big, big rabbi, right? Uh, Gazarita Anita declares a fast day below Atamitra, and the rain doesn't come, okay? Which is basically as scathing as you can get. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about, like, little rabbis who are unknown. Like, the biggest rabbis of Jewish tradition, okay? Declare fast days, and God says, thanks so much for playing, no. Right, low The rain does not come. God does not answer their prayers, which is a, it's really a scathing critique. Okay, now in the Tootsie Pop center of this story, okay, whatever I messed that up, but whatever. Okay, story of these stories is story number seven, and we're told here, guys, about Rabbi. Just so we know who Rabbi is, Rabbi. When when the rabbis refer to Rabbi, we mean Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi. okay, the compiler of the Mishnah. Pretty much as big as it gets in Jewish history, okay. Judah the prince, he, he codifies the Mishnah, right? In 220, He's, he, is the leading, he is the leader of the Jewish community at this time. What happens? Once, Rabbi ordained a fast below Atamitra and no rain falls. Thereupon, Ilfa, some say Rabbi, rabbi Ilfi, which I think is interesting, by the way, that they quickly add him, they turn his name into a rabbi because I don't really like what's about to happen, but here's what, right? Steps in front of the ark and says, he causes the wind to blow, and the wind blows. He causes the rain to fall, and the rain falls, okay? Guys, this is the opening, uh, this is not the opening, this is in the beginning of the second paragraph of the Amidah, the daily prayer service, right? Um, Wherein we say, that God causes the wind to blow and the rain to fall. And as this guy, Ilfa who is leading the community in prayer. And by the way, that's what that means, steps in front of the ark. It's not a great translation, and it's mine, so I can say that. It basically means he goes down to lead the community in prayer. Okay, So he's leading the community in the Amidah prayer, and he says a sentence that's part of the normal liturgy, and what happens? As soon as he says the words, what happens? It happens. happens. Now, let me just explain to you who who we're talking about. Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, the greatest, and... Ilfa, literally Ilfa means Aleph, right, or so-and-so, John Doe, Mr. X, Ilfa, okay? And he's not mentioned, he only mentioned one, well, two other places in the Talmud, the same story, and we don't know his name. We know his name is Mr. Ilfa, or they quickly give him smicha because... We don't want him to, right? Quickly, he becomes Rebbe Ilfi. But what's what's important here is the story tells that for us, which is amazing, right? But the point is, Mr. No Name and Rabbi Yehudanasi, okay? Can't bring the rain, brings it immediately, as soon as he says the words, rain falls, okay? Crazy. I hope we're getting the drama here. I'm trying to make a big dramatic, I'm trying to do, get some, because we should understand the dramatic effect of this story. It should be like, we should be falling out of our seats, okay? And... (laughs) Rabbi walks over to him and says, like, what's, who are you, (laughs) right? And I love this woman, because also, it's not like Ilfa says, like, I don't know. I have no idea what happened. Must be because you had daven before, and now look, I I came in. No, that's not what happens here. He said he knows exactly. What's so amazing to me here is, he knows exactly why he has this power. Look what he says. I live in a small, poor village. Delayed late be chamra la kidusha v Avdalta. That doesn't have Khamra wine for kiddush, the kiddush ritual, and have the have separating ritual, right? So what do I do? Tarachna va'atina kamra la kiddusha v Avdalta. I work hard. Tarachna, I take great pains in order to bring. Wine for Kiddush and Havdala to my community. Umafkinalahu yede chovatayhu, and I allow them, my community, to fulfill their obligation. That's the end of the story. <laughs> the end. That's it. This is the whole thing. It goes on to the next one, where another rab because rab- rab- our Okay. Right. So, so this is the whole thing. My friends, I'm not like hiding anything. You know what comes before. You know what comes after. This is the whole story. Tell me. What do you think about this? What's your reflections on this story?
3: I think you're gonna have to read something into it in order to describe how he got the capability to bring um, the the wine and the rain.
1: Okay, good, so say say more. So what does that mean to you? What what do you is happening here?
3: Well, I'm not exactly sure, but does he have a higher power in which he can command that to occur? Right. Better,
1: uh, we have. Right, He seems to have some special powers. And then Rabbi says to him, what's your special powers? And he says, oh, my special powers? I, make, I bring wine to my community. So that they can do what? Kiddush and Havdalah. Kiddush and Havdalah which wa- fulfill, their fulfill their obligations. So that they can fulfill their obligations. Good. Now let me ask you something. Yeah, yeah, Becca, go ahead.
4: Where in the um, you know, right first one when he says um, you are all, sudden, uh, if they're not prophets, they're the sons of prophets. But <coughs> I think as especially when you say he's any man, he's John Doe, go ahead, go ahead, is that you don't have to be the go leader, ahead. not by learning, not by go election, ahead. not by genetics, not by any of those things, that all of us contain the, the possibility, the power, the special power, the special power is in you and you and you and you, we all Power, yes, sir. the fact that he was just this heartfelt man who in his own village made it possible for everybody else to fulfill their obligation. That's his special power. He was Beautiful. That, that, that's what I think.
1: Beautiful, heartfelt, excellent, good, good. Yeah, William, go ahead.
4: The idea that uh,
2: someone cares about ordinary Jews and being able to uh, to yeah. fulfill their obligations uh, is more
4: important than a, than a great public
1: now, here's my, th- here's my question, guys, okay? Because I, I think that that's absolutely a critique that's happening here, right? You, this big rabbi, no, what matters is that I'm looking out for every Jew, okay? Now, but here's my problem with that. Here's my problem with that read, which I my read also. My problem with that read is that you think Rebbe didn't give tzedakah? We think Rebbe didn't enable the average Jew. To, I'm sure he had a whole tzedakah fund. He was extremely wealthy, and I'm sure he supported hundreds of Jews. I'm sure he did. Nothing in me doubts that, right? I'm sure he gave his quota and maybe even more of tzedakah. You know, he supported the Jewish community. He for sure did. Okay, So so is the issue here they didn't give tzedakah? I think there's something else we learn here. Where does Ilfa live? Yeah, he lives there. What I think is interesting to me is that this is about how far away I am from my people. Not just that, I'm, not that I don't see their need, I think I can see their need. I think Rebbe sees their need, he for sure does. In fact, he's praying on their behalf. He's praying for rain for them. So we don't have right, drought, right, so that they can have crops. But what's interesting to me about Ilfa is he lives there. I live in a poor village, which makes me feel like he doesn't have to live in a poor village. I didn't have to take on the burden of this community. I could move somewhere nice, live my life, send my check in, you know, and be fine. And actually this text is saying, no, you can't. You've got to live among your people, you wanna lead your people, you have to live there. And I think that that's a very, very real critique of leadership, right? That's very interesting to me that happens here that the rabbis are already aware of. Now, I wanna go further and say two other things. He doesn't feed the people. It's not that I take care of pains that they have food. That's not what we're talking about here, which I think is also very interesting, right? He does two things that I, and I think is very fast because there's a very severe critique of the rabbinic system here, of the rabbinic personalities here, okay? I'm saying I'm per- but what's interesting to me about Ilfa is that he is not outside the system. How does he bring the rain? By using what? The words of prayer, prayer that were established by the rabbis. That's interesting to me. In other words, he doesn't just say, God, bring the rain, which we see elsewhere. Other, other rabbinic personalities or iconoclastic personalities in this tract, they do, like Choni says, bring the rain. He doesn't pray, he, he tells God what to do. Here, what's interesting about Ilfa is that he is completely, completely Labriut, he is completely within the system. He just got up to lead prayers like a normal day, right? And somehow in that act of the every man, every person, there is a power in that. He is part of the system, right? And in enforcing the system, if you will, or at least living out the system that, let's say, Rabbi says he has to live out. He's following the rules. And what he provides for his community, which I think is really interesting, is wine for Kiddush and Havdalah. Both of those things can be done in fulfilling your biblical obligation with words, simply. The rabbis are the ones who say, you have to do it on a coast. You have to do it over wine. Right? That's a rabbinic innovation or not innovation depending on how we understand. Right? But that, so that's a rabbinic move. And that is interesting to me, that Ilfa says, I don't take pains that they have food, right, which maybe is understood. I take pains to allow them to have the full dignity of what it means to be part of the Jewish community, to be empowered to be a part of the system, which I think is amazing. Right? That, I allow them to fulfill their obligation. I'm empowering them to feel as full citizens of our community. It's much further, so I live with them. I don't, but what's interesting is even as I'm critiquing very, very severely the leadership, right, of the rabbinic community, I'm also saying, but I'm part of that, and I'm saying, I want to enable other Jews to be a part of that too. But you have to know your people. So again, what I think is interesting, part of what I want us to sort of see with all these texts is that it's a very complex, it's a very complex critique, right? And it's a very real reality of leadership. Part of what I think this source number seven is saying to us is a partnership, right? That Hillel has to trust the people and say, we are in a partnership with, I'm a a leader, but we're in partnership. I have the Kaleem, I have the tools of knowledge and of tradition, but you have the capacity to have a relationship with the divine, right? That's what source number. And then on the other hand, sometimes as leaders, we have to know, right? It's actually my time to step up and step in here. And I, and I think that what we saw with Rabbi is he misses that, right? Or he doesn't know how to do that necessarily. Doesn't have the tools to step in. And also what's fascinating is, back to what Becca said to us, which I think is really important, understanding the power that we have as those who are being led. In this text, we're told it's greater sometimes than our leader's power. Sometimes the power of the individual to see what is necessary, to do what is right, is actually better, more important, and again, has the capacity to call on the divine in a different way, or even more so than the greatest scholar of the generation. Right? And we're literally setting that up to say that. Right? And, that and that, I think, is very, very fascinating, uh, to think about what it means as individuals. What does that mean about our power and our responsibility to step up. Right? This text is saying, you know what? You know who the leaders are? Everybody. You have to step up. Right? But I still think a system is necessary. I still think leadership is necessary. I don't I don't tear down, right? It's not total not total anarchy. Right? I need to have both of these things, leaders and those who step up and step into their own power as well. What do you guys think? Thoughts, feedback, comments, critiques. Yeah. Beautiful. If you don't listen to your people, or any people, then you're not a leader anymore. Right. And if you can't, I also think, if you can't see them, if you can't see their needs, right, you're also not going to be a very effective leader, right? Excellent. Good. Yeah, Becca, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Start. And I'd like to see a little less arrogance yeah. for
4: leaders and a little more appreciation by leadership of the capacity right.
1: of the individual. Right. Although I, I think it's interesting to me, to me, if I were Robbie and I couldn't bring the rain and some, like, every man stood up and did it, I would have just walked out of Shul. I think the fact that he engages with him to me is interesting. He walked to me and says, Listen, I see that you did this. I didn't, can you tell me Tell me. So there is, do you think that there's a willingness, that's, I think that's what you're saying, Suzanne, also, right? There's a willingness on the part of Robbie to learn. Maybe it's not enough, or maybe he shouldn't have assumed he could have brought the rain, which is a whole other conversation here, which I think we didn't get to talk to. It's like, why did you assume that you could do that in the first place, right? Which that's, I think, back to your point, you know, like the, the superpower nature of this story seems like a little bit hard. But, I think what, but, but what, what I think is sort of interesting about this is Robbie, there is a moment of humility on his part. And he listens to the man, and he doesn't respond like, oh, that's stupid. We just hear him like take the, but there's a real rebuke. We hear him sort of just take the rebuke and that's the end of the story. Where Rabbi, there's a presumption that Ilfa did something that Rabbi couldn't or didn't. And, and, with, and the Talmud is so comfortable, I love about this is, the Talmud is so comfortable letting these critiques live, you know, and, and telling stories about the greatest rabbis or tradition who they take as completely binding and yet, we're imperfect, and we let those imperfections live. So, but I hear what you're saying, right? That there is there is a danger in leadership of this arrogance that is important. I don't want to like take that away, but I think it's it's good. If that, yeah, Danny, go ahead.
3: Um, I was going to say, I think this story number seven is about is really about Chavez, and how I think what's going on from my perspective is that um, Robbie is doing the wrong thing. He's not. His community, or wherever he's at, is it, it's become routine. It's, they're kind mm-hmm. of complacent. Like it's so it's easy mm-hmm. for them to, mm-hmm. it's to do, observe Shabbos. It's, it's easy for them to get a Kiddush. One. It's easy for them to continue with all the traditions that they've been doing for so long. Mm-hmm. But so he didn't really have any merit, like asking for rain, you know. And he was doing. He was fasting. God's saying, I don't need you to fast. Like I need mm-hmm. you to. Yeah, beautiful beautify the Mm, Shabbos. mm. And so I think that um, so when Rabbi Ilfi comes along and he's able to get the rain, it's showing that he loved Shabbos so much, and he was like, that's what he looked forward to every week, that he wanted everyone in his community to be able to take part in Mm. that whole experience, Mm. that he was willing to do anything and sacrifice anything that he needed to do to make sure his community was able to do it the right
1: Beautiful, very nice point, in fact, beautiful, beautiful. OK, folks, we're going we're gonna to close here. Thank you so much. Great, great, great to learn with you. And I uh, hope we'll see you soon. Thank you.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Lewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture.